We end this series, uh, uh, basically it's the book of, uh, of 1 Peter, as that letter written by Peter while he was in Rome, while the church of Rome was being persecuted under Nero. Pretty bad times. And he writes it to other Christians, warning them, saying this is, this is coming, and he's giving us the ability. What is, what, where do we find the grace to handle life's difficulties? Right? How do we have the grace for faith to thrive in a, in a hard world, in a toxic environment? And it was really broken up into three major sections. This is why I preached. This is an exegetical series, so I broke up my, seri- my sermons and the basic main three movements of that beginning with, he talked about how do we, how do we handle uh, life when our, when, uh, when our life is being tested by fire, when there's trials of all kinds, when there's difficulties and good people suffer bad things. How does faith grow and survive that? And he talks about, it's all about perspective. It's about remembering that, that heaven is, is forever and this world is a temporary place and then we've got to live for the forever things and to keep that mindset, that perspective. And then last week he, he talks about uh, how, do we have, uh, how do we live with, uh, in a world with broken institutions, right? Where governments don't always operate the way they should, like when they were, you know, killing Christians or, or when households don't operate the way they should or when work is frustrating and hard. How do you... How do you have a faithful life in the midst of that? And we see that God gives us grace when we're under authority and how a Christian can respond in those things. And then the book finishes up and it talks about this. How do we handle life when our faith, when our faith is under scrutiny? And I don't know if you noticed this, but in our culture right now, our faith is a little bit under scrutiny, isn't it? It's not that we're an immoral culture. In fact, uh, I, I hear sometimes people mislead us, as, uh, uh, mis. Uh, diagnose the culture and say we are becoming more immoral. I don't agree with that at all. I think we're becoming increasingly moral. The problem is that we have the wrong morals. And that we've become a, a anti-biblically moral culture. And the reason for that is because we've moved past Christianity as a culture. And, and the things that we used to all agree with in culture is saying these are right and wrong, these are God's standards and we're just going to agree with those. We've moved away from that and we've said God's not relevant as as a culture and therefore it's up to us to create our own standards of right and wrong and you remember that's kind of where the problem began with back in Eden right as where people began to have their own standards of right and wrong see an immoral culture is a culture that does things that we believe are wrong but we live in a culture today in which people are very very moral but what they believe is right and wrong don't agree with what God says is right and wrong we're not immoral we're just wrongly moral and because of that, uh, sometimes our faith really is, is under a, a, an enormous amount of scrutiny. Um, you know, we've had this, pult- this cultural shift. In the 90s, we were basically post-Christian. Now we are aggressively secular. And you'll see that in a lot of uh, uh, debates, discussion in the public square, things like this. People saying, keep your, your religion at home. Well, I don't have to see it. I even had a, a person stop me at a coffee shop after I prayed for somebody, told me that they would prefer that I wouldn't do that out in public. Uh, and that's just where we are. Now, that was not an immoral person. That was a person that was very aggressively secular, believing that it is, religion is somehow wrong. There is a new kind of where, where in the scriptures, uh, something called faithfulness was highly prized. And that's really what was the goal of society, was to be faithful to God and what he said. Uh, and now there's a different new ethic out there, and it's, it's an aggressive type of tolerance. But, it's, but it, it's interesting kind of tolerance. It's a kind of tolerance that is intolerant of anything that they don't agree with. And, and 
we laugh at that at the same time, uh, it is the reality that we live in. Um, instead of, of righteousness and, and, and love being our ethic, we now have tolerance and fairness. And of course, just like Christians have done a poor job throughout history because we're also sinful people of being completely faithful and loving, those that hold to a new standard of ethics also uh, sometimes are very intolerant and very unfair in how they apply it because, uh, well, we're all biased. But this is where we're at, and because our standards are different than theirs, uh, we are oftentimes, through this tolerance, seen as very narrow-minded or bigoted. Um, and we wonder, what has made our culture so uh, theophobic, right? Or Christophobic. You mentioned Jesus, and they're like, oh, no, the sky's falling, right? You're, you're sick. I am. But, uh, but, I, but I'm contagious with Christ. And, uh, but they, they're like, oh, keep that away from me. Why? Why is it? Because they're afraid of what our ethic teaches. And so we're taught to, that we're bigoted because our standard differs with theirs. And so our faith is under scrutiny in that way. There is a wholesale rejection of absolute truth in our society, uh, and that is that's increasingly. Why? Because if you reject an absolute God, you reject an absolute authority. I've had great debates with uh, loving discussions, actually more than debates, with some that... Uh, that are on the other side of this. And, and they say, well, you know, uh, ethics are all about what's best for people now. And therefore, ethics change. Which is why it's okay for their morals to change and them to demand that our morals change with them. And uh, because of this, this uh, rejection of truth, oftentimes then as morals change, we're we are at contrast. Christians, our faith system is in contrast with how ethics have moved. And therefore, we're seen as immoral. And the way that we teach and what we teach, I mean, there are, I can't tell you how many times that I have been yelled at either in my office or get lovely love notes later on or because people listen to my sermons online and, and find that, that I teach basically what Scripture says is, is my standard. And they will call me horrible things saying that I am a very immoral, bad person. And they are using moral terms. And it's not as though these people feel that they're, they're being wicked. They feel that I am being wicked. And they feel a moral obligation to try to set me right. And I don't know if you face that, but we face, we see that on television. Uh, we're going to be ridiculed, and we are increasingly, uh, you know, saying we're we're backwards, we think wrong, all that kind of stuff. Why? Because society has shifted. Now let me stop for a second and say this is not a, a bash on society. See, it, we hear this term oftentimes that we are in a culture war. Have you heard that? Jesus never called us to engage in a culture war. I don't find it anywhere in this book. He called us to engage in a spiritual war. So a culture war pits us against people we disagree with. Pits us against humans that have wrong understandings and bad ideas. Pits us against those who think that they have a standard of morality but, uh, but are misguided. So Jesus engaged, called us to engage in a spiritual battle. Instead of fighting against those who disagree with us, we were caught to called to serve those we disagree with. We're called to lay our lives down and to love them. You know, the most interesting thing is that there was a culture battle in Rome, and it would look like the Christians were basically, they had nothing in their corner. They were going to, to, to lose completely because, you know, Rome, the, the emperor, everything was against them. And less than 200 years later, Rome is Christian. We fight a different way. 
We fight a different enemy. We don't fight people. We don't fight culture. We fight the lies that hold people in bondage. We don't fight out of hatred or anger. We fight out of love, compassion. And that's what Peter talks about. And he knew what it was like to be in a toxic culture. Think about Rome in the first century. If, if, if you haven't done much study in the past, let me just give you a little picture of it. There was something back then called a repressive tolerance. I love reading the anti-Nicene fathers, which are the, the letters, the writings of those who came right after the generation after the apostles. And then it goes up to like 300 years before the Council of Nicaea, before Christianity becomes the, the religion of the land. And they write in there their struggles and the difficulties and what's happening in society. I love to read the ancient historians who talk about culture from the time. And you know there was tolerance back then in Rome. See, Rome wanted peace. And how did they demand peace? They said, you have to accept what other people believe. The main thing, though, is you have to accept what we believe, and that's that you have to worship the emperor. That was a big deal. But there was this thing saying, don't you dare say that your religion is right. Don't you dare say that your way of thinking is right. You can hold that privately on your own, but don't you dare say that you have an exclusive truth that you hold to. Does it sound familiar? You know, there was a rejection of absolute truth back then. What did, what did uh, Pontius Pilate say to Jesus when, when he asks what Jesus tells of you know, his identity and stuff? He says, what is truth? Do you think that he was the only one? He was part of society, a very system that was designed upon this type of, of aggressive tolerance. And because of that, you can't tolerate things. I'm going to say this. You have to tolerate things you don't agree with, but how they define tolerance was you have to agree with, with things that conflict with each other rationally. And the only way to rectify those things is if you throw out the idea of truth. And that's how Rome existed. What was absolute truth? It was the official policy that it didn't exist. It was the part of culture that it couldn't exist. That's how they had peace. How about this? There was an anti-biblical morality going on then, right? It was seen as morally good to worship the emperor. That's a bad deal. That kind of, is like of all the sins, that breaks the biggest ones, the biggest rules of scripture. They're not to have any other God before them, not to worship anybody but God. That goes to the very heart. That's worse than, than mass murder. But that was seen as their, a huge thing, part of their society, as a moral truth. But there was beyond that, uh, the emperor worship. Of course, there was other sins that, that uh, were, were part widespread of society. How about this? They had promiscuity was massive up there. I mean, it was normal for people, for guys to have not just mistresses and for women to have I don't know what you would call that, mastresses. I don't know. But, but, they, but pedophilia was a big part of, of their society. Homosexuality was a big part of the society. Family structure was, was basically pretty torn apart. Abortion was, was readily practiced. Bestiality was there. I mean, there were some bad things. It was not a, a, a friendly culture to Christian ethic. And you know what? Freedom, religious freedoms, were in that time were viewed as a threat to society. Now, they, they say, okay, you can have religious freedom, but it's got to be underneath their standard of ethics. There was a really cool letter that uh, was written by uh, this guy named Pliny the, the Younger. Pliny the Younger was, uh, he was a philosopher, historian. His dad, Pliny the Elder, was there when Vesuvius blew up, and he was an uh, he was a, a, a admiral for the Royal Navy, for the... For the uh, Romans, and he went in and 
died uh, for that. But Pliny the Younger was wealthy, grew up uh, with great level aristocracy. He was set over the Mediterranean area when he got older. And he writes a letter to the Emperor Trajan, who was a, not a friend to Christianity. If you think the Nero was bad, Trajan was, was ten times worse. He was a bad news for Christians. And he writes this letter to him, uh, Pliny the Younger, and he says he wonders what to do with the Christians. Because he says, you know what, they keep teaching this truth. Should we go out and hunt them down and execute them? And, uh, and I think it's interesting how, how Trajan, who is this pretty wicked emperor, although secular world sees him as a very strong good emperor because he brought uh, a lot of economic wealth to the, to the empire, but how he writes back. And he says, he says, you know what, yeah, Christians, they're, they're, because they claim absolute truth, they're a problem. He says, so yeah, absolutely go and kill them uh, with no mercy. Make a spectacle of it. But don't go hunt them down. He says, only find the Christians that will stay true to their faith. Any Christian that will, will deny Jesus as the ultimate Lord and will, will worship the emperor, we want to lift those people up and, and celebrate their tolerance to set an example for others. Does this sound familiar? It was just the consequences were a little more severe for Christians back then. You see, we were dealing with a society that I think if, if our level of, of anti-biblical morality maybe cranked up to the volume level of five, there was cranked up to maybe like 10 or 11, right? That's the difference. But it's just a, a society that's running in contradiction to the ways of God. And because of that, the people of God had their faith put under scrutiny. And we find ourselves there today. What do we do with that? Can faith survive in the midst of a hostile environment? Well, if you, if you turn to 1 Peter 3, there's some really practical things. And I would say, just overall, um, is the Roman Empire still around? No. Is the Christian church still around? Yeah, faith can absolutely survive hostile environments. Right? It absolutely can. There are times it can thrive. But it's not a guarantee. Suffering, I hear some Christians say, we're going to welcome suffering and hardship because it's a guarantee that's going to grow our faith. That's not absolutely uh, a guarantee. I mean, there are times in history where suffering has come in and has devastated the church. I got an example of that. It was in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, where uh, the, the past caliphate down in, uh, in the Middle East, in Turkey, uh, under the Ottoman Empire, uh, there was a mass execution of 50 million, that's with an M, million Christians in Turkey, in the Ottoman Empire. And that happened just in the late 1800s, early 1900s, only 100 years ago, basically. And, and they rounded up 50 million, it's 10 times the Holocaust almost. And they ex- executed Christians, and if you went to Turkey, I went to Turkey not very long ago, on a missions trip, and there was a very small Christian uh, segment left. It used to be a center, a hub for faith. In fact, uh, Istanbul used to be Constantinople. There's a cool song about that. And here's the thing, is why did it change? Well, it's because when you kill off all the Christians, there's not many people left to say, you know what, maybe our identity would be something different. Or how about this? Did you know that, that Europe, before World War II, was 80% Christian? Massive. A, a light, a beacon into the world, send missionaries all over the place for hundreds of years. We're, we're a bastion of civilization for society for a long time. And then World War I and then World War II hit. And the suffering, the deep suffering that happened as a result of those wars and the devastation rocked a lot of people's faith. And now Europe sits at around 3 to 
believers. You see, suffering is not a guarantee that the faith will thrive. There, there are, it's an opportunity for faith to thrive. But there are things that we have to do to make sure if we are in a hostile environment, if we are going through difficult things, it's not, we have to make sure that we're running along the same playbook, the right playbook with God in order for faith to grow. And that's what Peter talks about. So if you are here in 1 Peter 3, uh, page 851, if you are using one of our Bibles, um, he gives us some things that's important. The first thing he says, and I find that this is, this is so crucial, it says, make Christ Lord. Everything else follows after this. Uh, look what it says uh, in verse 16. Uh, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good, right? But we're like, normally not. But what if our standard of good is different, Right? And it says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And then he gives us his things. But don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It's scary in society when things are against you and you feel like you're, when, when everyone's telling you you're wrong. What gives us the ability not to, 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 to collapse into that? Well, it says, don't fear what they fear. How? We make Christ as Lord. And I love how then he, he, he gives very practical in this. And he's like, okay, if you make Christ as Lord, then, then you don't have to fear what they fear. And let's talk about what that means. It's not just, just general things. Like, what are they going to do? Kill you? Look at verse, 13, uh, verse 18. He says, uh, uh, if they kill you, it says this. Jesus already died once for all. They already killed him. He's doing well. I mean, we need to remember that. What if somebody threatens you of your faith? They're going to say, we're going to take your life. You're like, take it. I get a new body. Thank you very much. You have to understand that this world is not all there is. That's why the very first thing he talks about is the right perspective. And he reminds us that, oh wait, uh, we have an example, right? Christ suffered for us. And he left us an example, and his example isn't just in the suffering, it's also in the victory. So what do I do, kill you? Well, they killed Jesus. He did all right. And we get to raise again too, is what the promise of the word is, if we follow him. How about this? What are they going to Condemn you? That's a harder one, I think, in society. We don't, very few times in America are, are you going to be able to, somebody to say, if you don't renounce your faith, I'm going to kill you. But I tell you what's going to happen a lot is they're going to condemn you. How dare you, Christian, live those biblical morals? <laughs> you're bad. You're evil. And then it says this in verses 19 through 21. It talks about Jesus. He's overcoming death and hell. In fact, he talks about the flood, which was a pretty big judgment, by the way. And... And how it was by faith that Noah escaped that. And how baptism is very much a symbol of that for us. You know, we shouldn't fear the condemnation of this world because we have received the forgiveness of God. We're not under his condemnation anymore. That's great news, isn't it? I mean, that should make you happy. That, that, that gives us great joy. If this world condemns us, who cares? God can condemn this world. In fact, it says that he will someday. Which is exactly why we need to be in this world warning people so they can turn to our loving Father. But who cares if they condemn us? We've already been forgiven. We are already good. And how about this? What are they going to do? Shame you? The shame hurts, doesn't it? I have got family members who think that because I'm a pastor that I'm a very immoral person because I teach backwards ideas. And it's hard because, you know... I love my nieces and nephews and, they, and my sisters and brothers and stuff. They Most of them, you know, let me be around them and stuff like that. But then there's always this thing like, but don't you dare tell them the crazy ideas that you have, Uncle Aaron. 
That hurts. But you know what? It's okay. I love my nieces and nephews and my brothers and sisters who disagree with me. That's okay. They're misguided. But you know what the thing is, is that even if we are shamed, or if we're shamed in the media, and we're shamed in the news, we're shamed in, on, in, in society, who cares? It, it reminds us here that, that uh, Jesus, he, he receives glory, and those of us who follow him receive glory. There is no shame for us, ultimately. It even says in heaven that, that, that even the angels and the powers submit to him. He's pretty darn famous. We get to stand with him. Are we willing to handle a little ridicule now for the great glory that's coming? Absolutely. I mean, who would trade that kind of glory for, for the temporary kind we can get in this world? I think that's a pretty amazing thing. So he says here, don't fear what the world fears. The world fears things because the world has a bad perspective. They look at this world and they say, this is what it's all about. And so therefore, if you kill me, you take that away, I'm going to fear that. Or, or this world's all about, if, if you shame me, then I'm going to not enjoy this thing, so that I'm going to fear that. But we don't worry about those things. It, it's, it's we have been saved. We, Christ is glorified, and we get to share in that. He, we, we're not under condemnation. But we get that when we make Christ our Lord. And that means that he really has to be the boss of our life. If you are a Christian and you're trying to live the Christian faith in this world as it is right now, and you're not willing to bend the knee to Jesus and say, not my way, but yours. Not my will, but yours. I'm going to follow you. You're going to have a hard time. But if we're willing to say, you know what, I have traded the ways of this world for the ways of Christ, and this is the path I'm on. I'm living for eternal things, and I'm making him Lord. There is nothing in this world that can stop you because the very tools that they try to stop you with are ineffective. Isn't that great? Hey, well, we make Christ Lord, but then he says, okay, as you make Christ Lord, there are a lot of Christians who make Christ Lord and then mess it up for the kingdom because they don't have Christ's attitude. You see, to be effective in the faith, yeah, we're going to survive this by making Christ Lord. It's going to keep our sanity and our hope and our joy by keeping him Lord, but we're going to be effective in our life because we have to hold on to his attitude. That's how it works. And uh, Chapter 4 where he begins this line of thinking, and I love this. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. I love that. Arm yourself. We're in a battle, but not a culture war. How did Jesus, what kind of attitude was Jesus? Was it out there just debating, arguing, being, you know, with all the people that disagreed? Yeah, he would stand up for truth, but he'd also lay down his life for those and, and defended those that were weak. We have to have the same attitude as Christ. And it says, because whoever suffers in this body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. We have to have that attitude. And, And the attitude of Christ was this. It's looking for the next world above this one. It's living for the next world more than I'm living for this world. It doesn't mean that this world doesn't matter. It means that what I'm living for changes. And that actually makes this world matter a whole lot. Because there's a purpose for us being here. Living for this world leaves, uh, living for this world, like the rest of this world, uh, it talks about in verses 3 through 5, he says it, it leads to lives of death, doesn't it? All of the misguided morals of people, doesn't they always lead to death? Doesn't the scripture say there's a way that seems right to people, but the end there is death? And don't we see that? What has happened to family ever since the, the sexual revolution? 
ever since we've decided to take away genders and roles and work against the way that God talks about structures and authority in scriptures. Haven't we seen it fall apart? I mean, even pagans understand this. They just don't understand why. It makes them scratch their heads. Haven't we seen an increase in, in all kinds of things of drunkenness and, and, uh, and all these other sins that basically destroy our lives? When we go out with freedom, but we have no restrictions from God on how to use that freedom, don't we end up dying as people, as society? And he says there in verses 3 and 5, he says this, but you have spent long enough doing what the pagans chose to do. We've been called out of that dead living. I don't have to make my family members follow Christ, right? I just have to follow Christ. I have to love my wife. I have to pray for my enemies. I have to be generous and kind. I have to have the attitude of Christ that's willing to suffer for those who don't necessarily deserve it. That's what I have to do. And Christ is powerful in that. That's the attitude. It's an attitude of love. Is it fair? No. That's the great thing. Is this world that we have that, remember that base morality of saying fairness is a big thing? Fairness is only what you deserve. But Christians say, you don't deserve it and I'm going to love you anyhow. I'm going to care for you anyhow. I'm not going to retaliate even though you deserve it. We are set free from fairness which makes us very dangerous, right? But in a good way. We can love those that nobody else dares to love and we could care for those that nobody else dares to care for. And like I says, eternity is near. The reason we can do this is because eternity is coming. It's near. It's like right at the door so we've got to live like it. Verse 7 10 says, the end of all things is near. We have to remember that. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I tell you what this, every person lives in this world as a foreigner. Have you met anybody that's been around since Adam? I mean, every time you pass a, 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 a graveyard, shouldn't that be a reminder for every single person that this place isn't truly anybody's home? We're all just here temporarily. Even if it's 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Flip of the eye. So we got to live for the bigger things and eternity is on its way. So live for that, the bigger things. And then it tells us what we're supposed to do in that, how to have Christ's attitude, knowing this. It's not this, this attitude like, well, fine, this world's going to go away, I'm just going to bide my time. No, the idea is we only have a very short time to help. And therefore it says Christ's attitude is this, we've got to pray, we've got to love, we've got to be hospitable, we've got to actively serve others, we've got to practice generosity. That's what it says. That's the attitude of Christ. Does that sound like a culture war or a battle for people's souls? And I think it's interesting. How many people have come to Christ after losing an argument about him? None. And how many of us have come to Christ because somebody cared enough for us, loved us, showed us patience and kindness, served us? And that's the kind of thing that Jesus did, isn't it? Didn't Jesus pray for us? Didn't he love us even when we didn't deserve it? Was Jesus hospitable? Yeah, he's actually making homes in his house for us. That's pretty awesome hospitality. Did Jesus actively serve us? Yeah, he even left heaven to come down to meet our deepest needs. Did Jesus practice generosity? He gave us everything. You see, we live in a world which is a hard place but we have Christ's attitude. And when we gain Christ's attitude, his heart for our world, that's where we find the grace necessary to love this world. See, 
There's been an example set for you. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. His attitude is, is, is massive. And as we do that, we see that when we, when we have Christ's attitude, then, then it's important that we glorify Christ's name. Don't get that out of order. If you make Christ as Lord and try to glorify his name, but you don't have his attitude, you're actually giving him a bad name. But when we have, when we do things out of love and charity and kindness and goodness, when we follow Christ's example, then we glorify Christ. And when we glorify his name, it says in, uh, in uh, verses uh, 12 uh, through 13, it says, uh, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that so you may also be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, suffering is part of this life. Did you get that? Verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. How many Christians, when suffering come in your life, we say, oh God, where are you? Why, why did you let this happen? Don't be surprised. And you know the fiery ordeal he's talking about literally is the Christians being burned alive by Nero. That's a true fiery, that's like legit, literal fiery trial. And he says, even in that, don't be surprised if this world hates you. Jesus said that, right? That's okay. It doesn't shock us. You see, persecution is not evidence of God's absence. It's opportunity instead to represent. Did Jesus face persecution? How did he represent on the cross, what did Jesus say to the people or to God on behalf of the people? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus had some attitude. And so what we suffer in this life matters, though. I think that's something that's huge that the Christian faith gives us. Everybody suffers. Every single person in this room has something. We all look nice and all that kind of stuff, but we're all dealing with something. Everybody in the community, in our town, filled with people's homes that, are, that people are suffering. We, we don't say that God is broken. We broke this world. But you know what's something unique that our faith teaches us once we are in Christ? That our suffering has value, just as Christ's suffering had value. And he left us an example to follow, didn't he? Verse 15, it says, don't be a dummy and suffer for doing evil. Okay, sometimes we do suffer for doing stupid stuff. Right? If, if you don't pay your taxes... It's not God's will that you go and just suffer in prison. He'll use it. But, you know, you've got to obey the law. You know, if, if you're nasty to your spouse, you know, it's not like God was there saying, well, you're going to have a nasty marriage. <laughs> so you, you entered into that on your own because you were, you were unwise. So it says, don't suffer for doing evil. If the world hates us because we stand outside of, of you know, places where, where people are, are servicemen and women are being buried and then we condemn the world for their sin at that time, that's no wonder that's, that's being stupid. And we're going to be persecuted for that. And that's really not God's will. <laughs> He'll use it, but it's not his will for us. It says, but it says, verse 17, it says, if we suffer, make sure it's for doing the right things, for standing with Christ. So think about your life and, and the people that you love because you know what? Our faith is not about just the big picture. You are a Christian. You are an ambassador of Christ. You are salt and light. So think about the people around you. And what is the culture around you saying about you? Are they upset with your faith because you're standing with Jesus? Or are they upset with your faith because the way that you live doesn't mimic him? 
You know, how we suffer, too, is just as important as what we suffer. Uh, Verse 16 says, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you get to bear His name. I think as Christians at times when we go through suffering, and I, I went through this too, I had to deal with it, you have to grieve the suffering. But if you're always just criticizing God and saying, He's awful, He's mean, He's bad, all this kind of stuff, that doesn't really do much to glorify Christ. That doesn't do much for the eternal things, right? That's kind of giving God an unfair bad name. But in the midst of our sufferings, if we could say, you know what, this is painful and it's awful, but I praise God that I've been saved from this. This is not going to last forever, and at least he's using it. And God, if you see me worthy of going through this, then be with me in it. Give me the grace to handle this. And I've seen, not just in my own life, but in the lives of so many of you, how God has not just redeemed suffering, but has used it as a powerful tool of winning hearts and lives for the kingdom. We don't praise God for our suffering, but we must praise God in our suffering. But we have to do that when we have Christ's attitude, of course. And then in verse 19, it says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. How many times in our lives when we suffer, we think, I get a pass because I'm having a bad day, I can be mean to somebody else. Isn't that the way that we usually do? That's not it. That's the way the world works. It's not about fairness. Is it fair that you're suffering what you're going through? No, it's absolutely not fair. It's not right. That's why Jesus came. He came to save us from this world. But if you're in the midst of it and you are suffering, it's not strange and different, but that's all the more reason. At that time, it's more important than ever that you do good. Can you care for others when you're hurting? Did Jesus care for others when he was hurting? He left us an example to follow. And as we glorify Christ's name, here's the good news, is it doesn't last forever. Aren't you happy this world is not forever? So we get to look for Christ's return, and I tell you, he's coming back. Some of us may not be in the flesh when that happens. We may have already died and we get new bodies, and who cares? And some of us may be here when he comes back. I don't know. Wouldn't it be awesome if he came before the end of the sermon? That would be amazing, and I would feel so much better. We look for his return because it's absolutely going to happen. He came once, he will come again. We look for it. And it says here in verse chapter 5, this is the, the happy parts of this. It says, remember that this world doesn't last forever and neither will your suffering. It will end. This storm will pass. This world will pass. But heaven, eternity, never passes. That's why it's called eternity. What joy. That's what we get to look forward to. In verse 4 it says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Are you living for that? That's when you Now, in context, he's talking to pastors, the shepherds of the church, and he's saying to them in verse 3, he says, Love your people. Serve them like Christ served them. Care for them. Don't lord your authority over them, right? Because if you, if you live your life in such a way that you're living for the eternal things and setting that example, then you're going to receive a crown of glory when Christ returns. Of course, then in verse 6, he says, the people of God, he says, follow your leaders as they do this. Follow your leaders. But you know what that promise? This is true for all of us. The reason they're called leaders is because they're going where everybody else is supposed to be going. That's why the example is set by the pastors to say, we're supposed to live in such a way to lay down our lives for you, to love you, to care for you, even when it's not fair and right, so that you can see that example and follow us. And that you too also will receive a crown of glory. 
When Jesus comes back, your flag will be clear. You'll say to God, I've lived my life for you and you've redeemed my suffering. And you've used my life for purpose and meaning. You want to be able to say that (laughs) when he comes back. So look for his return and remember he is coming back. And what an amazing example. I think it's so cool in scripture. He doesn't tell us when because I know we're all procrastinators. And if he says, I'm coming back, you know, July 18th of, you know, 2020, we'd all be right now be like, well, we got time. We'll save the world in, in 2019. But every day we look for his return knowing that when it comes, when Jesus comes back, it is the best day. And we long for that. And as we do that, we have to depend on God's grace. When our faith is under scrutiny, you're not going to survive this life on your own. Your faith isn't going to survive just of your own power. We don't have the willpower to love mean people, right? That's the whole problem. I don't have the capacity to love like Christ loved. He is eternal. I'm not. It's really hard to love my enemies. They're my enemies for a reason. They're not nice people. It's really hard to forgive people who don't deserve it because they don't deserve it. It's really hard to care for those who who don't really honestly deserve my help. But you know what? That's not what it's about. I don't have the reservoir to do that forever. That's why I need God's grace. And God gives me the grace to handle the trial with the trial. And that's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has its own problems. And you know what? Who's going to be there tomorrow? Jesus is going to be there tomorrow. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you tomorrow. God's grace is going to be with you tomorrow. He's going to be enough for tomorrow. Don't live tomorrow today. Live today. Depend on God's grace today. That's what it says, verse uh, 7, I love this, cast your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Don't you find comfort in that? says, cast your anxiety on him. He cares for you. God cares for you. Miss your brokenness and miss the fact that you don't deserve his love. He loves you. Always has, always will. Remember in the midst of the fiery trials that you face, 
But God is there with you. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their fiery furnace. And he's with you today. He's not going to leave you, abandon you, forsaken you. His grace is enough. And he doesn't just hold you in this life, but he'll hold you in the next. I mean, even Jesus faced anxiety, didn't he? This passage is some people, Christians, misuse and say it's wrong to have anxiety as a Christian. Jesus had so much anxiety the night before he died, he sweat blood. That's anxiety disorder. That's significant. (coughs) But what did he do with his anxiety? He went to the Father. And that's what it says. It says, not my will, but your be done. If I have to do this, be there with me. Give me the strength. Help me. God will. He does. Verses 10 and 11, it says, and this is an amazing promise, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What a promise. You know what's so cool about God? There are things you can do that he can't, and one of those things is you can lie. God can't lie. Think about the very beginning. Was there light? No, there wasn't. But God said, let there be light, and what happened? Boom, there was light, right? Were there birds? No, but he said, let there be birds, and boom, it happened. God speaks it. It becomes reality. That's part of That's why it's impossible for him to lie. And he says this in his word to you. He himself will restore you. He himself will make you strong. So stand firm. Be steadfast. And to him be the power forever. What a promise. There's never a time in heaven where, where his rule will end. Where, where, oh, I'm running nose. He will lose the ability to hold you up. His grace, his grace is sufficient. And then some. So as we bring this, this series, this book, that was there to encourage Christians in a time when faith was hard. Remember, life is hard. You don't need a reminder. But remember that it's not wrong that it can be hard. It's okay if the world is hostile. We don't freak out as Christians. We've been here before as Christians, and the church still exists. But God's grace enables us to live in hope by living in holiness. He allows us to live in harmony with each other in that holiness. See, when our faith is under scrutiny, we will experience God's grace. And we will do that when we make Christ our Lord, when we have Christ's attitude, when we glorify Christ's name, when we look for Christ's return, and we depend upon his grace. So how do you apply that? Well, some things I'd suggest. And you have your connection card. You can look there. Some things to do. Maybe first thing you do is memorize 1 Peter 2.21. Maybe in the midst of this life, you need to remember there's an example for you to follow. That verse reminds you of that. So when you're going through, you're starting to freak out. You're like, oh yeah, Christ let me an example. I can follow this. How about this? Maybe you're going to read uh, 1 Peter 3-5. through 5. I preached on it today. Why don't you read it yourself? Or maybe you say, you know what? I'm going to pray for my enemies. Well, I have Christ's example. The hardest thing in the world is not just to pray destruction over your enemy, but that they will actually be saved. There are people in this world that are very lost, very moral, but very anti-biblically moral. Pray for them. Pray that God will show his light in their life because the way that they're living is leading even to their own death. 
So love them enough to pray. How about this? How about invest your suffering in God's service? If you're going through something difficult, know that God doesn't abandon you in it. There is something in there, something powerful for his kingdom. And lay that down and say, God, I don't like this. I wouldn't choose this. Probably why I didn't ask you. But if you're going to use it, use it. And, I've, and I'm grateful for the fact that you consider me worthy of being able to suffer even in this for you. So please use it. And know what God will. And if you would like to talk about how to invest your suffering, I'd be happy to meet with you. Maybe there's something else I didn't think about. Maybe there's a different commitment that you need to make. Certainly mark this down. Or maybe there's a prayer request you have. Please let us know. I love praying for you. And you know what? Our God listens to us. He cares for us. So let me pray with you. Here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, I ask you to take these connection cards and put them in the offering basket. Um, Of course, before we do that, uh, let me just say a quick prayer uh, to ask God to bless these. Heavenly Father, I thank you for you. I thank you for your amazing promise and your word. It says that you're going to lift us up, that you're going to restore us, that you make all things right. You're the God of of perfection, and you're the God of recreation. So, Father, let us live lives worthy of you for the commitments that are made today. Let us, Father, keep those in a way that honors you and loves you. Father, I also pray for our tithes and our offerings that are being made. Lord, these are investments not in in just a, a small mountain church, but, Father, in your eternal kingdom. So, Father, use them as such. Build people into your citizens through these gifts and these donations. Give the finance team and the pastors wisdom to know how to spend these funds in such a way that builds your kingdom and brings you glory. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.